Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire-Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular, completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Welcome to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. I'm really excited to bring you today's guest and our conversation because we're going to talk about quieting your inner critic. And I know that so many women, including myself, who either struggle with drinking or are in sobriety, struggle with a really loud inner critic voice. My guest today is Vanessa Klugman. She is a mother of three, a physician who retired when she came into recovery five years ago, and a life and recovery coach, as well as a She Recovers certified coach. Vanessa is in recovery from an addiction to prescription painkillers and anxiety meds. She's really in recovery from anxiety that stemmed from an unlivable life. 
Vanessa says she has a harsh inner critic who told her messages that she was not good enough. She believed that her worth was equated with how much she achieved, how well she was liked, and how much she gave to others. She wasn't living an authentic life, and this led to an inner sense of disease. And when I spoke with Vanessa and when I read this description, I completely resonated with it. I also have and I'm working on quieting an inner critic that tells me that I need to be productive and liked and good in order to be worthy. In recovery, Vanessa became passionate about sharing what she had learned from her journey of quieting her inner critic and befriending her anxiety. She started her business, Resilience Recovery Coaching, two years ago. Self-compassion was one of Vanessa's most powerful tools that she's learned along the way and that has helped her heal from shame and cope with those inner critical voices. And I am so excited to have Vanessa come on the show today and talk about your inner critic, how to quiet it, how to embrace your anxiety, and a three-step process to help heal yourself. Vanessa, thank you so much for being here. Hi, thanks, Casey. Thanks so much for having me on the show today. I'm really excited to share what I know about and what I've got to know about the inner critic and self-compassion. Well, to start, why don't you tell us about the inner critic, what it is and how it shows up for most women in their lives? Sure. So I think that what I noticed and what most women do notice is that when we come into recovery and just in general in life itself, we have put down our substance of choice. And that in some ways, I think is the easiest part of our recovery journey, because we're then left to face ourselves, right? And without our numbing behavior. And often what happens is we experience anxiety, depression, shame, inner critical voices that are very, very painful. So I think that the thing that I help people learn and what I've learned myself is that we need to start becoming aware of those voices. We need to learn to tolerate those uncomfortable emotions of anxiety and depression without distracting and numbing. And so my coaching practice is about building in tools. But if we want to talk just about the critic itself, the critic, um, that critical voice um, comes about really from a very early age, right? So we start to take on messages, maybe from parental messages, caregiving messages, society's messages. Um, And we take those messages on and then those become a voice in our head. And what people start to learn is that what people people in recovery or people in general don't realize is that they have this voice that's constantly talking to them um, as it's their mind chatter is what I call it. It's this constant mind chatter. It's like a devil sitting on your shoulder. It's berating you. It's beating you up. It's telling you to do better. Um, it's telling you messages of not being good enough. That's pretty much what it sounds like. And many of us walk around completely unaware that we have this voice going all the time, talking to us all the time. So the first step is to actually become aware of it, right? To actually notice that we're caught up in that, that dialogue, that that dialogue is going on all the time. And is it that it just is so constant, we don't even notice it or we think it's us we just or we think it's true so it's faded into the background where it's just it's part of how you get up shower get dressed get in your car drive to work kiss your kids goodbye 
Yeah, great point. So yes, it is both. It's that we actually think it is who we are, right? Many people just think that is us, right? It is, we become so identified with the critic that we don't even notice that it's a separate part of us. And what I what we just I believe think, it. We just believe, we believe it, it to be true. And so we just yeah. don't even notice. We're just walking around life saying, I am anxious. I am not smart enough. I am not thin enough. I am not good enough as a mother. I am not pretty enough, whatever it is. Right. And so what that, yes, we believe it. We don't know that it isn't even really truly who we are at our core. We we believe its messages. We become identified with its messages. And so... And actually, I love the, this, um, this quote from Tara Brock, who is a woman who I do a lot of work from, I've taken a lot of my work from, but she calls it this, she calls it the trance of unworthiness. So we walk around in this trance, caught in this trance of this unworthy chatter that tells us we're not a good enough mother, we're not thin enough. We're not um, smart enough. We're not funny enough. Whatever, everyone's voice has something that tells it something different. And when I help, when I, when you start to write down all the stuff that the critic says to you on a piece of paper, you become kind of shocked. You look at that and you're like, huh, I would never talk to anyone else like that. Wow. It's usually yeah. really, cr- really mean and vicious. Well, one of the funniest ones I have, because I've done some of this work and it is really shocking, is stuff that you absolutely cannot control, but you've somehow internalized as not good enough or not good as. So one of the most hysterical ones that I have is that I'm not tall enough. I'm too short. So I'm 5'3", and I think that since high school for some reason stuck in my head, I've desperately wanted to be five, seven or five, eight. Like somehow if I was stretched out, I would be thinner. I would have more presence at work. I would be literally more looked up to people would want to like me more. And that is so ridiculous because, you know, a, a lot of people like me, including my husband, because they, I mean, not like me because of this, but they're like, you're so cute because I'm kind of diminutive um, in stature, at least. And otherwise, like nobody else is like, yeah, I don't take her seriously at work because she's four inches shorter than I really think she should be. Right. I mean, and isn't that crazy, that message, right? Because there's nothing you can change about that. And yet somehow in your mind, you took on that message that being tall was in some way a good thing, right? Absolutely. And you can and just that expand that to everything and compounded. Um, I can't wear high heels because I sprained my ankle in field hockey and lacrosse like seven <laughs> times. So I was like, not only am I too short, but apparently I'm not disciplined enough to wear high heels so that I don't look so short. Like just, I mean, it's the stupidest example, but the things we carry around every day. Oh my gosh. Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48. So if you're going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep. It is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms 
head on. And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Women cannot stop raving about it on social media, but the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. So if you're going through this, like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at happymammoth.com with promo code HELLO. That's happymammoth.com and use promo code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Yeah, so we have to first, we have to become aware of those things we carry around, right? The first step in changing is actually becoming aware of something. So we we write down the messages, we see what the critic is saying to us, and then we have to work with those messages and start to heal them and start to, and one of the ways we I do that is, um, it's called internal family systems, which is the idea that we all are made up of a bunch of different parts of ourselves. So we have a inner critical part and we have a controller and we have a rebel. And But the inner critic is a really loud part of ourselves. And it's there for a reason, right? It's not just there to berate us. It's there actually to protect us. It's there to prevent us from failing or from, to protect us from being rejected, And is it true that most of us internalize this when we were pretty young, like six to 10, when we were first realizing that other people wanted us to behave in a certain way that probably was not the way we were behaving? I always think I have a six-year-old daughter that this somehow starts in school. Um, She went to pre-K, but like how you walk, how you talk, how you ask to go to the bathroom, you know, some of that assimilation is really good. It's about kindness. But a lot of it is saying both to girls and boys that however you are naturally acting is not right. Yeah, we pick it up. Yes, we pick it up either from our caregivers, right? Or we pick it up from school. A lot of it comes from school and from our society, right? Or our peers. What do you get made fun of? What do other what do you watch other people getting made fun of or being ostracized about? Yeah. And then you tell yourself and you start to develop this inner voice that says, don't do that. Don't act that way. You need to be this way in order to be accepted. Right. And so you pick up that you, you then build that into a belief that this is the way you need to live your life. And then when you're 20 and 30, it doesn't serve you anymore. It's yeah. now not, it's now not protecting you from rejection. It's just causing you a lot of pain and suffering because you are rejecting yourself 50 times a day, yeah. as opposed to trying to protect yourself from being rejected by others. And what yeah. I think is, is not, it's in no way funny, but it's interesting. We don't realize that everybody is walking around with these voices in their head constantly. Like it's amazing. We can even have conversations with others and pay attention to what's being said, because when you write them down, you realize how often it is going through and it's not just beating yourself up, although that's a part of it. It literally is stopping your natural reaction to almost everything you would possibly do as a sort of here, you know, I think something and I do it. No, you're thinking something, analyzing it, you know, stopping yourself, redoing it in a way that's more acceptable. I mean, am I going overboard as to the degree to which this permeates our lives? No, you're not. Because what's incredible is I've done workshops around the inner critic and I'll have everyone write down on a piece of paper 
what is one thing your inner critic says to you and anonymously? And then I'll read out in front of the whole group everything that everyone's inner critic says. And it is, everyone is like shocked. Everyone's inner critic says there is always, you're not good enough, you're a loser, you're too fat. It's just, it's, it's universal. It is universal that we have the critic and we have a lot less pain and suffering when we start to become aware of its messages and then work with them, right, to heal them. And, and, then, and one of the ways of doing that, I mean, there are a variety of ways. One is to actually just get to know the critic, like asking it messages, like journaling and saying, you know, what is it that you, what are you afraid is going to happen if I'm too fat? you know, or I don't lose weight, you know, what are you afraid is going to happen? And then befriending it, like letting it know that it's seen and heard. That's one way. That Wait, you can so how do it. you do that? That sounds way easier than I can even think about, <laughs> even, you know, for myself, like befriending your fear, befriending the voice, befriending existing the way you think you know, and truly believe deep down that you're not good enough, like I'm okay existing in a way where I don't think I'm okay. I mean, I know, I get the theory, but like, how do you do that? That's a great question. So it is really a little, so basically it is the idea that, like I said, this internal family system, so we have this part, this inner critical part. And in order to let this part stop being so, so be so burdened and so needing to berate us. We need to actually make friends with it. And by making friends with it through a process of like, there's a meditative process in which you, I guide people in a meditation. And during the meditation, we start to ask that part, what are you trying to protect me from? What are you, what are you afraid is going to happen if you stop beating me up? And then you come from a place of really deep, you, you need to be in a place of um, what's called self. So it's a little complicated and I could speak for an hour on the, on the system. But Can you, when sorry, you, I don't mean to interrupt, yeah. but something yeah, you said no was so powerful and I just wanted mm -hmm. to pause mm -hmm. and have you say something more about it. The question you asked is, what am I afraid is going to happen if I stop beating myself up? Yeah. Yeah. That is really powerful. Yeah. I mean, I almost want to like write that down yeah. because yeah. when you say that, if I were to stop beating myself up, I mean, that's what you're doing, but there is a real fear. Like you truly believe that by beating yourself up, you are making yourself better. You And, and in reality, you're living in a constant state of bullying. Yeah. Right. And when you see that, and you really become aware of that, and you can come from a place of like deep groundedness, when you become aware of it, you can see how much pain you're putting yourself through. You can get a lot of healing then. And you're much less, I found in my own life, and in some of the clients I've worked with, that when they are able to see how that critic is just trying to protect you, but it's doing it the wrong way, right? It isn't working anymore. It's just beating you up. And that beating ourselves up does not motivate us. It's actually coming from a place of fear, not love. You know, with a child, when you beat them up, what motivates a child, right? It's not punishment, right? It's not, it's love. It's 
it's believing in someone it's it's coming from that place is so much more motivating Mm-hmm. than the beating up place, right? Yeah, so- it's the idea of you're trying to micromanage and control and, you know, yeah, just bully yourself into being better, but that doesn't work. Or if it does work, it only works for a while. And I also see this in myself and in the women I coach when they're trying to quit drinking. I always say, you can't hate yourself well. And yet that's what we all try to do. We try to hate ourselves well and talk enough shit to ourselves and tell ourselves we're horrible and take pictures of ourselves when we're hungover and ugly so that we will be shamed into doing better. And that does not motivate people. It does, that is not, you need to come from a positive, loving place, right? To really be motivated. And, and it's no way to live. Right. It's no way to live. And so I have a quote that I want to read, which is that when we treat ourselves with kindness, we can be our best selves. Right. Yeah. That's a quote from Marion Ingham. And it's, it's just, that is the truth. When we treat ourselves with kindness, we can show up in our best, truly coming from our best, most authentic self. Yeah. And I remember when I was in early sobriety, and afterwards, I was going to a therapist, and and I have a daughter who's now six. I quit when she was two. Somewhere in between those ages, she looks exactly like I did when I was young. And my therapist just told me, when I think back on my past or when I think back on, on um, the messages I'm telling myself, sort of pushing down the pain. Um, and anxiety, which I know is something you're going to talk about. She said, imagine that you are saying those words to your four-year-old daughter. Imagine you are saying, get your shit together. What's wrong with you? Just toughen up. You know, all those things like to this little girl, which is that self-compassion for the little girl you have inside of you. Just beating someone down into submission and compliance. Yeah, yeah. That is so true, you know, and those inner critical voices can cause so much, um, for at least for me, cause tremendous anxiety, tremendous, like the feeling, the voice that just kept telling me, you need to be doing more, you need more people to like you, you know, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, keep going, keep going, just resulted in an unbelievable sense of discomfort within and dis-ease and a need to escape. Like I needed to escape in whatever way I knew. And for me, it was numbing, right? I numbed. And so that was the only way I knew of coping with that feeling until I came into recovery and then learned that there's a whole other world of ways and tools that we can have that can help us cope that are so much healthier than those than that. Yeah. Because you don't even realize that like numbing, whether it's through drinking or I know you were, um, abusing sort of prescription painkillers, I believe, is just a maladaptive coping strategy. And we adopted it because it worked until it didn't. And it was out of a place of, of trying to care and comfort ourselves. And the truth is we just picked up the wrong tool and we need to pick up the right ones. So tell us, you started by telling us that we just needed to befriend and uh, embrace the voice telling us that what we are is unacceptable. So tell me more about how to do that. 
When I was drinking, I used alcohol to calm my mind, to relieve anxiety, and to sleep well at the end of a busy day. I didn't know that alcohol actually spiked my stress hormone, increased anxiety, and as little as one glass of wine a night reduced my sleep quality by 24%. I was really excited to find Tanasi, a better way to find calm, rest, relief, and to reduce inflammation. Tanasi creates the highest quality, scientifically validated CBD and hemp extract products. Tanasi's formula includes a unique combination of CBD and CBDA in every dose, which is two times more effective than just CBD alone. So if you want to create a sense of calm, to calm your mind, to relax before bed for a great night of sleep, try Tanasi. Tanasi's being really generous with our listeners. You can go to Tanasi.com and use code HELLO to get 25% off at checkout right now. That's T-A-N-A-S-I.com to get 25% off your first order with the promo code HELLO and get ready to sleep well. So one of the ways, one of the tools, and there are a number, but one of them that I've spent a lot of time learning about is self-compassion. That's just one of many tools that I use, but I love this tool because um, self-compassion is really simple. It's just about treating ourselves as we would our best friend or as we would one of our beloved children or a baby. I sometimes helps people to think of a baby. How would you treat a baby? But 80% of us are kinder to everyone else than we are to ourselves. When they've done studies, I've seen that. So really self-compassion is the idea that we're extending this kindness to ourselves um, and by doing this, it's been shown that like self-compassion reduces anxiety, it reduces depression, it helps people be resilient, it helps people regulate their emotions, it has all these incredible qualities about it. Um, and there's a lot of research that's been done on it. So I love research. I was a physician, so I like to learn about things from a scientific standpoint. Like, yeah, there's actual science that backs this up, you know, and I think I think that what I find a barrier to self-compassion is that people will say, oh, there are some myths around it. So if, I, if it's okay, I'll tell you some of the Please, myths. Please, I'd okay. love to hear that. Yeah. So the myths are people, when I tell people to be self-compassionate, some people are like, oh, that's kind of weak. You know, some people think self-compassion is weak. Couldn't be farther from the truth. Self-compassion is actually um, being associated with resilience. And the reason is because um, when we are, and and actually what I wanted to point out is that when they did studies of Iraqi vets, they took these vets, when they came home, those who were higher on self-compassion had much less post-traumatic stress, leading to so more resilient. Mm. Women who are going through divorce, who have been studied and have more self-compassion, bounce back and do much better. So it's not weak. The other thing about self-compassion is people think that you need your critic to be motivated, right? I need that critic. I can't be compassionate to myself. I, I, otherwise, I wouldn't get anything done. I, I would go to fa- hell. I would fall right. apart. Like- right, right. But like we said earlier, the driving, the driving force behind self-compassion is love, not fear. And love makes us feel secure. 
right? And confident, whereas fear feeds insecurity. So that's another reason why self-compassion is, is, does not undermine motiva- motivation. And then the last is the idea that self-compassion is in some way selfish, right? And it's not, because when you meet your own needs, you have more, not less to give to your family, to your children, to other people in the world. So it's not selfish. So those are the things that the barriers I get when people, when I even bring it up. Well, and I think, and this is 90, it's completely going to date myself, but I'm, I'm thinking back to an SNL skit back in the day, Saturday Night Live, that was like, I forget whether it was Stuart Smalley, but the guy turned to a mirror and he was pretty cheesy and he was like, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like you. So I feel like A, people think self-compassion is sort of putting that on a vision board, which by the way, I'm the biggest vision board person. I don't think this is a bad idea saying those things to yourself, but also um, that it's only losers do that, right? People who are comical, people who you would laugh out at SNL. So tell me about that. You said it's selfish. The myths are that it's selfish, that it's weak. Um, that you would fall apart. But what about that sort of caricature, I guess, of the person who does that? Um, I actually think a person who, yeah, I love that character. I mean, I think that's, (laughs) that's the conception, the misconception about it. Right. So I actually think there's a lovely idea about self-compassion that Kristen Neff N-E-F-F is the woman who's done all the work on self-compassion, by the Mm -hmm. way. So if anyone's interested, they could look her up. But she talks about these two sides to self-compassion. There's the yin and the yang. The yin of self-compassion is like the soft self-compassion, the being kind to yourself, the kind of sweet, that that part of self-compassion. And just as important is the yang. And I love this because yang self-compassion is fierce self-compassion. It is the self-compassion that says no. It's the self-compassion that puts up boundaries, Ah. that has that hard no. And we need both in order to have a balance of our self-compassion. So it's not just the being nice to oneself. It's also the standing up for oneself, right? It's having a a backbone. It's the opposite of, you know, it's not when when your gut says no, you smile and say yes. It's actually saying I'm going to take care of myself rather than acquiescing to all these people who I may not even like and respect, but just out of fear. So it's strong, not weak. Yeah. It's like the mama bear, right? Looking after her cubs. It's that kind of, it's that kind of strength in it. And when I heard that, that also so resonated with me because it's not, it's both. You need both for self-compassion, but I think that, that is, speaks to that misconception. Yeah. yeah I, I yeah. really like that because, you know, you almost feel that if you are too self-compassionate or, or certainly if anyone else sees it, you will be judged or people will make fun of you, which again is that inner critic voice coming back saying, if you put up a sign or a reminder that you're beautiful, you're good enough, you're smart enough, people love you for who you are and your authentic self. You're like, God, if anyone sees this, I'm going to be laughed out of town. 
Yeah. And what, yeah, I get that. And so, and I think it's also not just about affirmation. Yes. Right. So that's the other thing. It's not just affirmations, it's action. So mm. compassion is like an, a desire to alleviate our suffering and it comes with action usually. So when we're compassionate to others, it's not just empathy, like sitting and understanding. Compassion has a, has a, like an action associated with it. I want to alleviate your suffering by doing something for you or you know, not just sitting here and listening yeah. often, but doing takes, there's action associated with it. So I think the other thing that I like about self-compassion, I just heard this the other day, I heard Kristen Neff being interviewed and she was talking about, you know, self-care, which is great and wonderful, can become another thing that's just on our to-do list. It can, it can have that quality to it. Like, oh, I need to also add self-care to, you know, what I need to do. I now need to do self-care on top of everything else. But self-compassion is available to us in any moment. Like we can be struggling and we can just use our self-compassion at that moment and it can really help us become more resilient in the moment. So that's kind of an advantage of self-compassion versus self-care for people yeah. who just don't have time, right? Yeah. Yeah. And how would that show up when for how would someone use self-compassion if they were running on empty and yet, you know, still in using your inner critic to should, I should be doing more self-care. So tell okay. me how that self-compassion would show yeah. up in that moment. Yeah. So I love the practice and called the self-compassion break. Okay. Wow. Which is a three-part practice, but it's very easy and you can do it in like one minute, literally. Um, and it brings in the three components that are the core of self-compassion. So, and I'm going to go through it and then I'll just give you an example of it. So it'll be easier to understand. So first of all, you need to be aware you're suffering or struggling, right? You can't be caught up in it. So it involves mindfulness, just being aware of the suffering, being able to have a little bit of space from it and notice that it's going on, right? A lot of the time we're just caught up in it. So the first step is you need to step back and notice there's something going on. That's not, that's, that's causing a struggle or suffering. The second part of self-compassion is the kindness part. Okay, so this is where we have to either, where we um, now either give ourselves a kind touch, like a hand on the heart, a gesture, a, a hug, which releases the oxytocin, which is then the hormone that kind of calms us, helps us connect with others, or it can be a kind words that you say to yourself. So like, I care about your suffering or you're not alone or whatever resonates with you. Or it could be a kind action, which we talked about before. It could be like a, setting a boundary. It could be an action like taking a bath. So there's that. And then the third part is the common humanity. And what I mean by that is we're not alone in our struggles. Often when we're suffering, we think we're failing or we've done something wrong. And it's just, and what this, this, what this is teaching us is that, no, this is just a part of life. Everyone struggles. Struggle is normal. Suffering is normal. We wouldn't go through life without this happening. We're all going to have problems with our children. We're all going to have challenges in our marriages. We're all going to have times where things are hard, right? So that's, those are the three components. But let me just explain, do it very quickly. Like you're just having a hard day. Um, something's going wrong. Your, your inner critic is be, being really loud telling you you're, say, a, say the example is you forgot to pick up your child at school 
you know, or you, you arrived late and you're like, I'm such a bad mother. How could I have done that? What's wrong with me? So now you just go, oh, I'm really struggling right now. This is like, I'm really, I'm really beating myself up. That's mindfulness. The second step is what can you do? Kind of yourself. It's okay. You know, I've got you. You're, 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 it's okay. I love you. I care about this suffering you're going through right now. This is really hard. It's hard to be a mom, right? It's hard to do everything. And then this is, this is part of life. We all make mistakes. We all struggle. We all suffer. And then there's kind of, it, it softens the experience. And then you're able to come to pick up your child without beating yourself up. But maybe, oh, I'm so sorry. Mom was late because she did this. And, and you can connect, right? And there's not this like, you're in this really negative, anxious mood. You've, you've brought yourself up from the downward spiral. You've interrupted it. Yeah, because I mean, I was smiling and nodding my head when you gave that example, because I have done that, meaning the what is wrong with me? I'm the worst mother ever. Oh, my God, what are they going to think of me? My daycare for my daughter used to be literally five minutes from my um, office. And so that was incredibly dangerous in my mind, because I would work you know, it closed at 6.15 and I would work straight through, you know, 5.50, have my alarm, but then trying to be shut down or, oh God, I didn't send this email or like someone stops me on the way out and just the adrenaline and the self-hatred and the guilt and the overcompensation of smiling and apologizing and God, that's exhausting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we, and right. Permission to be human. We are human. We make mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. And saying, acknowledge and validating and building someone up and loving themselves well, right? You work really hard and you've got a lot of responsibilities. And of course, you took that moment to talk to your colleague that was upset and your daughter's in a safe space with people who love you. And this is not an everyday occurrence. And you're a great mom and a great wife and a great employee. It's just, um, it's hard. And by the way, if your best friend did that and called you in a panic, you would not be like, yeah, you are freaking a mess. Pull your shit together. Right, right. It's starting to talk to ourselves and befriending ourselves as we would our best friend, right? And treating ourselves in that way. And I think the thing that's really wonderful about it is that, you can bring this, you can start to practice it and it can really change your life if you Mm -hmm. put, if you actually start practicing it. And so even the person with the most harsh inner critic can learn self-compassion. It's a learnable skill, Hmm. um, which is what's so beautiful about it is we can change our lives by learning it. um, And it, it just has so many benefits associated with it. It's so great in terms of like, you know, it, it can fundamentally shift your your approach to yourself. It can help you learn how to accept yourself. And I think, you know, it really improves self-acceptance because instead of beating yourself up for the mistakes you make, you you extend compassion. And so you see, you know, I think you no longer push away those parts of yourselves that you yeah. yourself that you don't want to see which is so so liberating. Well, I liked what you said about resilience both with um you know the recovery from 
you know, a war zone and reduction of post-traumatic stress syndrome, as well as women going through a divorce. I mean, hugely traumatic experiences. And I can imagine women recovering from addiction and navigating sobriety, right? You will be much more resilient if you extend yourself compassion for for where you were. I mean, I always, you know, when I'm coaching women and I truly believe this about myself, you're not, you're not weak. You're not fundamentally wrong for having become addicted to an addictive substance. Rather, you are brave and strong. And one of, you know, 95% of people who deal with this never attempt, much less, um, you know, to recover from this, they sort of stay in that really painful place. You are, you are brave. You are strong. This is hard. You should be proud of yourself every single step of the way, even for attempting to gather resources and think about this and stop these coping behaviors. You know, there is nothing wrong with you. And that is self-compassion. And, you know, right now I feel, and I know you do, extremely proud of yourself for not only recognizing you were in that difficult space, gathering resources and assistance to overcome it, breaking free, and being honest about what you've been through and who you are today. I mean, Mm -hmm. that is, you know, you're helping other people. And none Mm -hmm. of that is, what is wrong with me? Why did I do this? Why can everyone else drink and not have these issues? Why am I so weak? Why did I do this to my children? All of that crap. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of the time early in recovery, there's a lot of shame, right? Over what you've done, what you might have done. And so this is a great tool to help heal some of that shame. Just extending yourself some compassion can be very healing for shame. And it, yeah. And did you do that for yourself? Because I know, you know, we haven't talked about it, but you went through a period of addiction and came out of it. So how did you use that self-compassion to help yourself in that situation? So when I came into recovery, um, I really realized that I, I really feel like I'm in recovery, like I said, from an unlivable life. I had set these standards for myself that were really impossible to stick by um, and created, you know, a tremendous amount of dis-ease within me. And I knew that I was going to have to figure out other ways for dealing with my anxiety. So I started looking like what tools are there for dealing with anxiety other than numbing and pills and all of this. And so what I did was I went out and I started researching and learning and I found a variety of different things. And put together just a huge, you know, I have a number of different tools that I used, but one of them, one of the most important was self-compassion. Along with, you know, like the rain practice from Tara Brock and tapping to help me ground myself and, you know, surfing urges and all kinds of different tools that can help with anxious feelings that are not using a drug or distracting myself, right? Numbing or distracting. I think both of those are problems. So numbing is just getting rid of the feeling and distracting is also saying the feeling isn't good. I need to I need to figure out something else to do so I don't feel this feeling. I had to learn that it's okay to feel those feelings and that they come and they go. I had I always felt like I don't know how to get rid of this anxiety. I, you know, it's not going to go. What if it never goes? What how, what am I going to do then? I just it's so terrible. It feels so awful. And no. 
I learned that I can sit and I can be with my anxiety and it does pass, right? And yeah. that, that in itself is powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And also just when you're feeling any emotion, realizing that there's something beneath that that is valid and acknowledging that. I know that I was never and still am not very comfortable with anger at all. I mean, my inner critic voice Mm -hmm. says, you are not allowed to be angry, even when it's valid, like there must be something wrong with you, you need to make this go away as quickly as possible, you need to explain it away, rationalize it, make yourself be okay with whatever is causing the anger, as opposed to, you know, saying, okay, what am I feeling? I'm angry. Why am I feeling angry because of this? You know, you accept responsibility and take your your part of it, but you also recognize when it is a valid feeling and figure out how that, you know, you don't need to make it go away. It is a signal that something is not right and that something needs to change. Yeah. All emotions are there for a reason, right? They're telling us something. They're, they have a message. And yeah. anger, is a, anger is a big one for women. A lot of women suppress anger, right? It's not appropriate. It's not right to show your anger. I mean, that's the message I got. I also had a huge problem with anger. Like yeah. anger, I don't want anyone else to be angry and I don't want myself to be angry, right? Like it's like, it was a very challenging emotion, but it's there for a good reason. It says yeah. someone's crossed a boundary. Someone's, And so if we can work with it appropriately, right? we can use it effectively. Yeah. It's a boundary has been crossed. We can, we can learn to be okay with that uncomfortable feeling in our body and then set a boundary or say, no, that wasn't right. What you yeah. just did. Right? And the worry is that if you say something, you know, you need to suppress it because if you don't, you'll be seen as a bitch. You'll be seen as shrill. You'll be seen as not being able to take a joke. You'll be seen as uptight or, people won't want to be around you and you'll be so uncomfortable with conflict that then you'll have to apologize for righteous anger. You know what I mean? Just to make it okay in terms of sort of the emotional environment around you. I mean, and all of this is subconscious and yet it is, it is a constant chatter in your head. Yeah. 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 So I think for me in recovery, the big, the big thing has been a big, one of the big challenges has been learning to navigate skillfully navigate my emotions. Yeah. In particular, the emotion of anxiety. So what is, like you said, what is the, what is the underlying message? First of all, it's just when you're anxious, it's grounding yourself, right? Mm. So it's that practice of like, I need to calm my sympathetic nervous system right now. And I have a whole bunch of practices to do that. And then once I've calmed it, then like, what is it really here to tell me? Like, why, why, where is this anxiety coming from? And for me, it was coming from these messages of I need to be constantly proving myself I need to be making everyone else happy I need to be you know I need to be giving all the time in order for people to think I'm a good person right I need to be giving to everyone else so that everyone else thinks I'm great at my own expense and when I started to see that and was able to then use self-compassion um, and set some boundaries and choose things I want to do and not live by all the things I thought I should be doing. My life changed dramatically, but yeah. it takes time and it's work. Well, I mean, I, I, I remember someone said this to me and it, I think it's a thing about like, don't should on yourself, you know? Right. So 
question for you, since yeah. you brought up that, you know, all those messages, what were you afraid would happen if you didn't beat yourself up constantly? I think that I was mostly afraid. I think it was mostly a fear that I would be rejected. I wouldn't yeah. be part of the tribe. I wouldn't be admired. I would be rejected. I think that's what it came down to. Yeah. So what did happen when you stopped beating yourself up constantly? I started being the person I knew I always could be. Like I always knew deep down inside there was a place where I could feel at peace and live life according to my own values and my own, what I believed was important rather than what I'd been told was important. And many of the things were similar, right? And they weren't all that difference. It's just that I was doing things because I enjoyed them rather than because I thought I had to, or I should. Mm-hmm. So I started shifting. I created some boundaries that were very important. Giving Well, too so much. tell me about those. Give me a few examples because yeah, I think so it's I helpful. To, yeah, so I had to create boundaries in terms of family boundaries. So boundaries with people in my life that I felt I needed to be constantly taking care of. Um, and it was not, it, it was not working for me. Giving when I am giving out of duty and obligation rather than from a place of wanting to give it has this kind of negative feeling inside, right? When I'm giving because I really want to give to somebody, there's a very different feel about it. And so I had to do that with um, in, in my, some of my family members. Um, and that was the biggest, that was the biggest issue. It was that, that I needed to do. Mm-hmm. And so once you were able to do that, you were able to, to live more, at peace and in alignment and hopefully more resilient as well yeah. as you were, yeah. you were discussing it. So when p- things come up, you don't spiral in the yeah. same way. Yeah. Much more authentic and much yeah. more coming from the place. I, I, the, what felt right to me inside. Yeah. And one of the things, you know, that I've found since quitting drinking and, and not beating myself up constantly about that is, you know, it's, it's not only um, having self-compassion and recognizing that the emotions you're feeling are for a reason and that they may or may not be serving you and realizing that, you know, one of the things I love about recovery, I think we're doing it on this podcast. I think other podcasts and the secret Facebook groups and are doing it is realizing your third step of that process, which is the common humanity, that there are so many women out there and men who hear the exact same voices that you do that um, feel the same way you do that are giving voice to everything you thought was fundamentally wrong with you that you tell yourself every day. And the more that we hear that you, Vanessa, that me, Casey, that all the women that we're talking to and are, you know, going through this process of quitting drinking, you know, we all hear the same thing, like you said in your workshop, that we all think the same thing constantly, that that common humanity after sort of the acknowledgement, befriending it, kindness. I mean, that is life shifting. You sort of go through the world with more empathy for yourself and kindness and for other people, um, knowing that you're not alone. 
Yeah, that's you put that beautifully. That is very true. Yeah. And I think it also can be helpful. Like for me, a lot of what I do and why I talk on podcasts and why I tell my story is because I want to help people see that here I was a physician, right, um, who had it all and who, you know, looked like everything was great on the outside because I was so good at hiding things, was really struggling. So the person who's next to you who looks like she's great could be struggling just as much, right? And that they, that people are good at showing their best face and most of us have a lot of struggle or a lot going on behind the scenes that no one else knows about. And by telling our stories, we heal our shame, right? With shame, because shame lives in secrecy. Yes. So by coming out, we actually are helping heal that shame. Yeah. And it's so freeing. It's so free. You know, I didn't realize before I quit drinking because you you almost have to, you've taken away all your coping mechanisms. You have to share what's going on with you. You have to talk about it. You have to get support. And I didn't realize until I started to do that when I was going through the process of quitting drinking, how little I shared those struggles with even my best friends from high school, from college, from being a mom. Um, we you know, complained about our husbands occasionally. We complained about our work. We talked about our kids and difficult things with that, but we never talked about the really deep fears and hurts and struggles that we had ever. You know, it was all very, you know, you related, you you contacted people, you talked about it while you were drinking, but it never sort of got to the the true tender parts. And yeah. once you talk about them, God, it feels good. Yeah, yeah. And I was, I mean, I had like a wall around myself, right? I literally had a wall and a facade. I, I presented myself a certain way and all that vulnerability was blocked completely. Like you cannot see this part of me. And that's been the the amazing thing in recovery has been to just see that wall kind of come crumbling down and like letting out the inside and the vulnerable parts of myself. And that initially was super scary. Like, oh my God, I'm putting all this stuff out there. Oh, it's terrifying. Horrible. Like after my first podcast, I was dying. But, you know, now it's just easier and easier. And I just believe that it's so important to do that I keep just keep doing it because I know I just got to believe it helps other people too. It so does. And it gets forward. so much easier, right? Yeah. And then you yeah. you put stuff out there and and I'm even thinking about when I first posted in a secret Facebook group of people quitting drinking. I mean, I was shaking. I was terrified. This was something that I had hidden from myself and my husband and my friends because I was so terrified of of people being like, oh, damn, you need to not drink anymore. You know, like that was my worst nightmare. And having 20, 30 women come back and saying me too, and you sound just like me. And yes, I was there. And, you know, no, you're not a terrible mother and you're not a terrible human being and you're not a terrible, you know, corporate executive. You, yeah, you're a great person who's struggling with something that we all struggle with. God, that was that was amazing. I mean, I was yeah. crying as I read those yeah. messages. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, it breaks the stigma, right? Yeah. 
Absolutely. So I know you talked about the three part self compassion break, but you have so many other tools that you can use. I love that you mentioned tapping because I just started doing tapping. Um, I actually had someone on my podcast who, who talked about it. And since then, I've had three sessions with her. And it's lovely. She made a little video for my me so I can do tapping <laughs> on my own. But I'd never discovered that. And it is amazing. So you do that. What else do you use? So I do um, the practice of RAIN, which mm-hmm. is a practice from Tara Brock for dealing with uncomfortable emotions, for working with our uncomfortable emotions. And it's a four-step practice where instead of, so usually like we talked about, we push away our emotions. We don't want to feel them, right? Um, And this practice is about getting to know the emotions. So first you recognize that you're having some difficulty or some challenging emotion. That's the R of RAIN. The A is you allow it instead of you just saying yes to it. Yes, this anxiety is here right now. Yes, I'll let it be here even though I don't like it. Even though it's not great, I'm going to let it be here rather than pushing it away, right? Because what we resist just persists. It doesn't go away. And then the I, as we investigate it, we start asking, oh, where do we feel it? We try to come into our body. Where am I feeling this anxiety? Tightness in my chest. Um, And what what, what is this needing right now? What is this part of me needing right now? What is this part of me afraid of right now? We do these kind of investigative questions And often it comes down to, it's very similar to what we've been talking about. It comes down to this, usually we're afraid, what what this anxious part is afraid that we're going to fail or that we're going to be left alone, you know, be alone or that we're going to be rejected or that we're failing in some way. And what does it need? And then you go inward and ask, well, what what does that need? What What does that part need? And usually that part needs something like love, caring, acceptance, one of those things. And when you give it, when you give yourself that, then you nurture. The end is to just nurture yourself in that and you become much less identified as an anxious, I am anxious as just I have had, I'm having anxiety. There is anxiety present and anxiety then can pass along. So it's a beautiful practice. It's like the rain of self-compassion, the rain of that's another practice that I've used. And I do a number of other things as well, urge surfing and other practices that just can be really helpful for being with uncomfortable emotions and feelings. So tell me how people, if they're interested in learning more about you, about the work you can, you do. I know we've talked about a number of free resources. Kristen Neff, is that right? I'll put it in the show notes. Tara Brock and Rain and the three-part practice. But if they're interested in working with you or finding out more about what you do, how can they get in touch with you? Okay, great. So um, you can go to my website, resiliencerecoverycoaching.com and sign up for my newsletter. I send out a newsletter every month um, that has some free resources that are around anxiety and resilience. Um, And then I also have a Facebook page that people can join the Resilience Recovery Coaching Facebook page. Um, I'm also going to be starting a one-on-one coaching program, um, which is going to be a six-week coaching program around befriending your anxiety while living your best life, where I'll be taking people through understanding your anxious brain um, and then working with various grounding techniques and tools. And then we'll work on accepting and allowing our emotions rather than fighting and pushing them away. 
and we'll end up with some self-compassion and values um, and living our best life while experiencing anxiety. And it's going to be a great coaching program because it's just pulling together all of the tools that I've learned in the last five years and really give people a great experience around. And, and if someone is struggling with anxiety, this would be really helpful to them. And you said that was a one-on-one coaching program. Yes. yes? Six yeah. weeks. Great. Yeah. That sounds yeah. very helpful. Yeah. yeah. That's Thank wonderful. You. And I want to ask you, what's yeah. changed in your life since you found recovery? Okay. So what's changed? So many things. <laughs> but I would say that finding recovery has allowed me to let go of limiting beliefs that were holding me back from living an authentic life. Um, and I no longer live my life according to those old messages that I took on when I was young. I now live it according to my own beliefs. And I'm in a place right now of greater peace, much greater balance. I've learned really through my meditation practice that I do every day to be less reactive and I'm able to pause, right, before I do, before I react. Um, I'm able to choose my responses. Mm-hmm. And show up the way I want to want to in the world rather than being yanked about around by my emotions. So I think what I'd say is I'm living the life I always knew was possible, but that really seemed unattainable when I was caught up in my addiction. I, I feel blessed. That's beautiful. I think that's a perfect place to end this. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on and for sharing everything you have in terms of the tools of how to quiet your inner critic and how to live a more peaceful life and befriend and find different ways of coping with anxiety. I know it's something that so many of us struggle with. And, you know, the more that we can find ways to deal with it, I love that you said peace. I feel like we can live with just more peace, which is lovely. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed our chat today. Me too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.